Does the media drive presidential primaries this week on the science of politics? For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. In 2016, Donald Trump dominated media coverage in the race for the Republican nomination, and he's on track to do so again this time. Does the media react to events and signals of public support moving from one candidate to the next, or does it just focus on the frontrunner? And is media attention the main moving part in presidential primary campaigns? This week, I talked to Zachary Scott about his Journal of Elections, Public Opinion, and Parties article, replicating the discovery scrutiny decline model of quantity of media coverage in presidential primaries. He finds that the media only sequentially highlights candidates in some nomination contests. In others, they mostly stick with the frontrunners. But Trump dominated coverage much more than others, in part due to his fearful and personal rhetoric. I also talked to Kevin Reining about his Perspective on Politics article with Nick Dietrich, Media Coverage, Public Interest, and Support in the 2016 Republican Invisible Primary. He finds that public interest follows rather than brings media coverage. Media attention led to increased poll support for Trump, but not for the other candidates. At least in 2016, the conventional story that Trump garnered outsized coverage and benefited seems correct. I talked to both about what's in store for the 2024 cycle. Let's start with Scott, reviewing models of presidential campaign media coverage. All right, so what is the discovery scrutiny and decline model of the presidential primary process? So the discovery scrutiny and decline model is a theoretical model of media coverage, specifically the quantity of media coverage in presidential primaries that comes out of John Sides and Lynn Vavrek's 2013 book, uh, The Gamble, which is covering the 2012 presidential election, both through the Republican primary and also the general election between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama. Um, and they, I believe they've also brought it up uh, in their two subsequent books, Identity Crisis uh, and The Bitter End. Um, the basic idea of the discovery scrutiny decline model is that often uh, there will be a perceived frontrunner or favorite in a primary campaign, not necessarily always, but often. Uh, but then who is seen as kind of the main challenger to that candidate that can wax and wane throughout the cycle, uh, often as a function of media coverage, which tends to flow in this cyclical pattern. Um, so first, uh, a, a one of the candidates, you know, among the many who are competing will be quote unquote discovered. Uh, this will then precipitate a sharp increase in media coverage. So the media will land on, oh, this challenger, wow, look, maybe they could really contend for this nomination. They will see a huge surge in coverage. Uh, as that goes on, the model suggests that uh, this coverage will then start to turn more negative, that they will, you know, because the candidate is receiving so much more focus, more of that focus will be on the negative things about the candidate, things will be discovered that are not good. Uh, this will then lead to a decline. Uh, I, I believe the model suggests it'll probably come in support followed by media coverage, and then the process will repeat. Um, in practice, often even within the 2012 campaign, uh, there wasn't necessarily scrutiny per se. Um, it was more just the media discovered a new shiny new thing. Uh, and so it just moved on to a different candidate, you know, even though they hadn't necessarily landed on something negative about the previous candidate. Um, so the, it kind of fits, it can work a few different ways. Just to give practical examples for people who remember the 2012 campaign, Mitt Romney is receiving a pretty steady amount of coverage throughout. Um, early on, Rick Perry is a potential, you know, contender. Uh, and then he gets a huge amount of coverage. And then he has some airheaded moments uh, in some debates because he had recently had surgery and was high on painkillers. Uh, and also because um, I believe the media discovered that he, his family had hunted at a like hunting lodge that was named in both a racial epithet. Um, so that fits that model, right? A lot of coverage. Suddenly that coverage becomes more negative. Decline. Others like Rick Santorum never, at least to my mind, received all that much negative coverage. Uh, they just, you know, kind of ran out of time uh, and they, you know, their, their coverage then declined because they simply could no longer viably compete for the election. Um, so that is the basic pattern uh, that, you know, you will see the cyclical repetition of increases of coverage for some candidates decline for uh, the declines as they are replaced with others. It's not necessarily going to happen for every candidate in the race. John Huntsman never sees this happen, but you will see it for at least a few candidates. Every election cycle is the suggestion of the theoretical model. 
So you've studied uh, the applicability of this uh, model across uh, Democrats and Republicans since 2000, uh, finding it it sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. So what were the the big uh, findings and takeaways? Yeah, this may be the uh, simplest quantitative model uh, or like paper I've ever written and probably will ever write. Uh, all I really did was plot some lines uh, and look at them. The the basic test I wanted to do, I, I take a step back. Um, I would, when I read uh, the gamble, I was really smitten with this model because the 2012 Republican primary was uh, the first one that I really followed that closely because uh, I was in college. I was taking a lot of political science and a lot of journalism classes. So it was just something I was paying attention to. Uh, I remember uh, taking a class with uh, the president of our chapter, uh, our, our college chapter, the college Republicans, who just every four weeks came in with a different T-shirt for a new candidate who was ever was surging. Like the beginning of that fall semester, he was a Rick Perry guy and it just kept repeating. He was a Herman Cain guy for three weeks. Uh, and so when I read this model, I said, yeah, that makes a ton of sense that, you know, this was a person who was obviously very politically attuned. Uh, Probably a little skeptical of Mitt Romney for whatever reason, could be ideology, could just think he wasn't you know, going to win a general election, whatever it was, wanted some other, uh, some other, some someone else beside him as an alternative and kind of floated along with the media coverage as they repeat this process. Uh, I thought it was an excellent description of what happened in that election cycle. Um, you know, as, as I went through grad school, I kind of came to think of it as, you know, we would statistically refer to it as overfitted, right? It's that's a book that's focused on the 2012 election campaign specifically. It's a theoretical model to describe that election. And if you target a model to describe one thing, you tend to lose your ability to explain other things. And as I saw the 2016 campaign unfolding, I didn't think it really matched all that well with what was going on, either the Democratic or the Republican sides. You know, the Democratic side, there just weren't all that many candidates. There were only over five, really, uh, that ever made it to the debate stage. Two of them dropped out after a couple months. Martin O'Malley never got a surge. It was just two. There's not this repetitive, uh, repetitive cycle. The Republican side, Donald Trump sucked all the oxygen out of the room. No one else really had all that much, uh, had all that much surge or decline relative to where he was at. So I wanted to kind of see, okay, well, does this actually kind of broadly apply? Um, so I, you know, I just took the media coverage from all of these elections from twenty, uh, from two thousand to twenty twenty. Ultimately, um, that gives us nine presidential primary campaigns. Although we kind of have to throw one of them out because in the two thousand Democratic uh, race, there's only two candidates. So again, it, you can't even have a surge of decline when there's only two. Um, but it still gives us eight other races. And I just looked at the the share of coverage that, you know, candidates tended to receive over. And I, I operationalized the surge as did you receive a plurality of coverage? Um, so ever arise to be the most covered candidate, at, you know, at a certain period of time. Um, although ultimately, I think I was even more charitable than model and just kind of looking, did, did it look like you got close? Um, and when you do that, I think that the discovery scrutiny decline model can be it does a good job of explaining the media coverage, the patterns and quantity of media coverage in about half of those eight primaries where it's kind of eligible to happen. 2012 Republican primary is the best case. You see it really clearly with Santorum. You see it really clearly with Rick Perry, with Herman Cain. Newt Gingrich is kind of weird because he surges like three different times, um, but still broadly works. Again, doesn't describe everyone. There's not really a moment for Michelle Bachman, except maybe something around the Ames straw poll, not John Huntsman, but broadly, yeah, works. Um, the 2008 Republican primary is another one where I think it broadly works with Romney, with Giuliani, with Fred Thompson, uh, and with John McCain, the eventual nominee. And then the Democratic side, it works pretty well in 2004, uh, Kerry, Dean, uh, Wesley Clark, Lieberman, Edwards. Uh, and in the 2020 Democratic primary, kind of, um, it's getting a little hazy, but that may just be because there's so many candidates. But I think it you, it broadly describes what happened to Judge Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, uh, Elizabeth Warren, and Michael Bloomberg. So four primaries in which I think the discovery scrutiny decline model does a pretty good job. And I think anyone reasonably would look at it that way. But in the other four, it doesn't. It doesn't really help you explain the 2000 Republican primary in which George Bush is just kind of perpetually getting a lot of coverage. Everyone else is fighting for scraps until you get this big John McCain surge. But that's not a cyclical pattern. That's only two candidates. Um, it doesn't help you with the 2008 uh, Democratic primary in which it's Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama throughout. John Edwards a little bit at the beginning, but, you know, there are other candidates there and they never see that pattern. Uh, it doesn't help you with either of the primaries in 2016, Democratic or Republican side is already discussed. So 
it, I think it's a useful model for about half the races, but it still leaves half, and the question remains as to why. So you have also studied uh, the appeals that candidates directly uh, make in uh, presidential primaries, including studies of populism uh, and uh, emotional appeals. Um, what, what were the biggest uh, findings and takeaways uh, from, from those uh, studies? How widely are those appeals, and, and does that help us uh, understand some of the unique dynamics of these primaries? So I recently published a paper in PRQ on populist appeals in presidential primaries, uh, uh, the first one you referred to. Um, that was an, another project where the data collection that went into forming the corpus I used for a lot of these papers um, led me to something I didn't otherwise know um, that kind of informed that project. Uh, so uh, Kirk Hawkins, who does a lot of research on comparative populism, uh, he gave a talk uh, at, at the University of Maryland when I was there in grad school uh, about, you know, the surge in populism in presidential primaries, it, you know, had some measures of the populism used by Bernie Sanders and by Donald Trump and a little bit by Ted Cruz, and was making the case that you know, uh, American scholars need to, to do a better job of uh, reckoning with growing populism within American politics, and specifically uh, in, in engaging with the comparativist literature. At the time, I was collecting all of these speeches, and I just like happened on my computer with me, I pulled them up, and I started reading excerpts to him. And he said, yeah, that's those are great examples of populism. And I said, OK, well, these are by Jerry Brown in 1992. Like, clearly, populism is not a new thing within American presidential primaries, um, which led me to think, if it's not new, then how do parties react to it? Um, because maybe that's if we have populism continuously fomenting, but not leading to kind of takeovers of the parties, as you know, the suggestion was that was imminent then maybe there's something the parties are doing that is somehow engaging with or minimizing the threat of um, populism. So the approach I took to that is I uh, looked at how the parties react when they face a populist insurgency, and specifically um, a more electorally viable populist insurgency. So when a populist candidate emerges in these presidential primaries who actually does poll pretty well or wins over some delegates, what do the parties then do? And what I find is that you know, I, I took this pretty large collection of speeches by um, presidential primary candidates uh, in, throughout the primary season, about 4,000 speeches in total. Um, and I find that once the, the, the candidates who win the nomination, right, so Joe Biden after, you know, March 2020, but from that point in time, when Joe Biden is the presumptive nominee up to the convention, you find that when nominees, presumptive nominees, have faced a, a electorally viable populist challenger, they start to adopt some of the core issues of that populist challenger. They essentially assimilate some of the message, right, as a concession to that populist insurgency to say, look, I, I hear you. You are really concerned about healthcare, And so I'm going to start to assimilate that message. And they also do so with non-populist challengers, but the effect is actually quite stronger and more consistently found for populist challengers. Um, and as a further extension of that, I took the actual party platforms um, from uh, each of these election cycles, and I essentially took a, a plagiarism detection software that is used to decide if students are cheating. Uh, and I simply compared the, the words in platforms to the speeches by populist challengers. And I find that, you know, a populist challenger who does better in the polls, or actually not the polls, I should say, um, a populist challenger who accrues more delegates platforms tend to plagiarize from those speeches at a higher rate than they do from, you know, speeches by populists who don't get that share. Again, suggesting that parties react, that when they see that they have faced a, a electorally viable populist insurgency, they then try and make some sort of policy concessions to signal that they are willing to play ball with the, this populist uh, insurgency. Um, interestingly, and, and I argue consistent with the asymmetric parties thesis that says that the Democratic Party is primarily a coalition of interest groups, whereas the Republican Party is primarily an ideological movement that is less resistant to kind of, you know, offering policy concessions to keep themselves together. Uh, it's the Democratic Party that does that in response to populist uncertainties that, you know, Bernie Sanders runs in 2016 and Hillary Clinton says, OK, um, let me see what I can do to kind of move my positions around to accommodate this, whereas insurgencies within the Republican Party don't yield that same uh, same type of concessions. And I think that that's helpful for scholars of American politics in conceptualizing, you know, that populism happens and parties aren't static in response, that they can be dynamic and may inform how we think about um, the threat of populism moving forward. Uh, the second line of research you discussed is uh, some of my research that's co-authored with Jared McDonald of the University of Mary Washington that is looking at broadly symbolic appeals is how we characterize it uh, in, in elections, mostly presidential primaries, although we've started to kind of branch out to other levels of campaigns as well. 
Um, I'll give, uh, you know, we, we, we've been doing a couple different things with that, uh, including we have some working paper as in the pipeline. Um, I, I think just as a representative case, we have a, a, an article in APR that looks at um, differences in candidate identities and how they use emotional appeals. Um, so we find uh, that Republican candidates tend to use more fear appeals than Democratic candidates on average, and that women candidates tend to use more joy appeals than men candidates on average, um, even controlling for factors, uh, you know, like their poll standing um, or the, the phase in the race. Uh, and the other finding from that paper is, an, is a null finding, um, which is that uh, Davin Phoenix's uh, fantastic book on um, how anger appeals affect uh, voters of different races uh, implies that uh, Black candidates will avoid using anger uh, as a rhetorical appeal because it just doesn't activate um, uh, electorates, the same, uh, 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 racial minority uh, voters in the same way, and also that it can come with a penalty. Um, we don't find a difference uh, in use of anger by candidate race, uh, either looking at Black versus um, other groups or looking at racial minority candidates versus white candidates, um, which was surprising to us. We I love that book. I fully expected that result to replicate, and it simply didn't, and there is a lingering question as to why. Um, we have since, you know, in a working paper, extended that to general elections, and we find presidential general elections, we find the basic results holding. Um, and you know, we have we have a couple other projects in that pipeline that go beyond just emotional appeals, look at things like trait appeals. Uh, there's, again, part of this broader research agenda on symbolic appeals and in campaign or, uh, rhetoric. So you have uh, another line of research that looks at um, when the media and candidates are talking about the same uh, things. Um, and I think related to that is uh, some research on what happens when we have crowded fields and, and new candidates uh, enter. So what, what are the big findings there? What led me to be interested in this question of how media cover the agendas of presidential primary candidates was really the 2016 election, um, or the 2016 Republican primary specifically. I like to play a game with people when they ask me about this research, which I, is tell me what issues Donald Trump talked about in his uh, camp in his campaign. And people say immigration, they say trade, they say himself, and all of those things are correct. And then I say, okay, tell me what issues Jeb Bush talked about. And no one knows. Uh, right. And he had an agenda. It talked a lot about healthcare, care um, and it talked a lot about education, uh, actually. Uh, and those did not get through people like, to, you know, he received some coverage. People, The tone of that coverage may be, you know, positive or negative. I haven't actually looked at that. Um, but like, regardless, the coverage didn't talk about the issues he wanted to talk about. He had a case that he wanted to make to the voters and the voters didn't get it. Um, now, if they had gotten it, I don't know that they would have like liked him more. I have no idea. But the simple message, uh, you know, there were 17 candidates in that race and they all came up with a message they thought was their best case to make to the voters. And some for some of them, the voters got it. And for others, they didn't. Uh, and I was trying to, in my dissertation, uh, figure out why. Um, so what I use as a theoretical argument is I my my undergrad degrees were Personally, I had a degree in political science. I also got a degree in journalism, and I hated being a journalist. But I found the like, you know, the socialization into how to actually do journalism and learning how to be a professional very interesting. And we would get quizzed on these newsworthiness values in my like introductory journalism class. In, you know, in 2010, uh, we had a quiz every two weeks in which we were asked to like, what are the six newsworthiness values? Um, and I let's see, conflict, human interest. Uh, proximity, uh, importance, uh, timeliness, and unusualness. To this day, I can recite them. Uh, and so I wanted to see how, you know, can it, is it the case that those newsworthiness values that drive how journalists process what is and is not news is affecting how they portray the candidates' agendas when they actually go to generate coverage? Um, so it, there, you, you referenced two different papers that are both in that line and taking different on that question. Um, so one focuses on if candidates can portray their agendas in ways that are more enticing to journalists. Um, what I ultimately argue in that paper, and th this is an article that uh, was published in Journalism and Mass Communication Quarterly, is that uh, candidates can use rhetorical newsworthiness cues to affect how enticing their message appears to journalists um, by leveraging the, the news newsworthiness values that I just recited 13 years later. Um, so journalists think that conflict is an important feature of 
what makes something news. So can candidates affect how they, can they change how they present their message to seem like it involves more conflict, to essentially attract journalists to it? Uh, and in that paper, I argue that the way they can uh, change how sort of conflict uh, appealing their message is, is by invoking more anger. Um, and I show that there is a pretty strong correlation between the amount of anger that a candidate uses in their announcement speech and how well their uh, agenda was uh, presented on, in uh, mass media coverage. Um, another thing I suggested is that you know human interest is this important newsworthiness value that uh, candidates who talk more about themselves and define their appeal more around you know who they are as people. Um, for example, maybe talk about uh, you, if you're going to talk about, um, uh, let's say, economic hard times, you talk about how your family specifically dealt with economic hard times, right? Obama would talk about how he personally understands the, uh, you know, um, student loan crisis because he had recently paid off his student loans, right? Finding a personal way to portray it, that will appeal to journalists' sense of human interest as a newsworthiness value and will more uh, be more enticing to them. Uh, and again, I find the, that there is that correlation. The candidates who talk more about themselves, they tend to have more success at getting their agendas uh, across in the media. And then, you know, okay, so candidates who are angry and talk a lot about themselves tend to have more success. Well, if we look at the external world, uh, we can sometimes see that that plays out. Um, the second paper, uh, which was published in APR, uh, is focusing on how the introduction of new candidates can um, affect what is not always explicitly described as a newsworthiness value by journalists, but I think still as active, which is simplicity. Um, journalists, I don't think, like to define what they do as finding a simple way to portray the external world, but you know, you have a word count or you have a 30-second segment you're going to air. You can't dive into all the details. Um, so they tend to like stories that are really simple. They'll be able to kind of portray very clearly to their audience. Uh, and the basic argument is that when a new candidate enters the race, that brings a bunch of new fault lines with them, right? Okay, it's a new way of conceiving what the different divides are between candidates. Um, and that will essentially make the race less simple. And using a broader collection of speeches, not just announcement speeches, um, I and applying um, some some topic modeling to them to figure out what are the messages of the speeches versus the media coverage of the candidates because the the number of text is simply too large to analyze via content analysis. Uh, I find that you know when you have new candidates entering the race, um, you, overall candidates tend to have less success at getting their agenda across. And in reverse, when the field winnows and people drop out and it, you know concentrates into fewer and fewer candidates. Uh, the argument being that the race becomes simpler, the fault lines become clear to journalists, and the candidates who are still there see an increase in how much their agenda is permeating into media coverage. So presidential primaries uh, have been seen as a key lens uh, for understanding how parties make decisions, what parties are. Um, and yet uh, some of your findings may suggest that that's uh, something of a mistake uh, in that we only have a certain number of, of cases. Um, they're pretty, they have pretty idiosyncratic uh, dynamics. Uh, and if you take, say, like the party decides a model or a simpler version of it and apply it to congressional races, it turns out the establishment favorite is identifiable and wins a lot. Um, and so maybe, uh, you know, the, the, the kinds of uh, things we should know about parties um, are, uh, are, are more actively studied, so are, are, are better studied somewhere uh, else other than presidential primaries. So what, what is your kind of current, current take on that? How unique are presidential primaries as a lens on the parties? And is it, is it a sign, given that we seem to find some idiosyncrasies each time, that maybe this isn't the, the, the appropriate lens for understanding kind of the strength of parties or the dynamics of parties or what parties are? Empirically, I think... Uh it is really difficult to study presidential primaries because there are so few cases. The same lens that actually applies to presidential general elections. You know, sometimes someone will raise that point to like, hey, you are basing all of these on a set number of races that really post the New Deal because that's when we have reliable economic data. And like, you you don't have all that much data to actually work with. Are you actually sure you can generalize anything? Um, and the same basic logic applies to presidential primaries. They're really, really tough to study. Um, and, you know, because they occur just every, because they're, they're essentially, um, each individual case is so temporally dependent on the situation in which it arises, um, 
it's hard to generalize all that much across them. Um, there's always this counterfactual question of like, well, how would things have been differently in this particular time if, you know, this had happened, if you had had um, Twitter in 2000, you know, like the, um, you know, we had a bunch of uh, isolationist candidates in the 90s and early 2000s uh, in Robertson and Buchanan. Would those campaigns have been more successful uh, had social media been different or had the media ecosystem been differently, uh, been different? Um, and those are unanswerable. Uh, empirically, it's tough to put too much stock in analyzing presidential primaries. Um, that said, uh, I think that what makes presidential primaries so important to study more than anything else is that they are one um, arena in which pretty much everyone within the party is forced to compete simultaneously. Uh, right? Parties are very complicated things. Um, they comprise a lot of different actors with different interests. Uh, and they're not always active in the same fights at the same time and with the same level of resources. But everyone has to participate in the presidential primary in some capacity. And so they're just the one place where we can see it all imperfectly um, unfold. That said, that is really more an argument for studying presidential primaries for, out of convenience uh, more than out of, uh, you know, anything specific about them. Um, and I have increasingly been thinking about how we can study the extended members of the party networks and what they do to lay the groundwork before the presidential primaries. Scott is skeptical that we can build a general model of how the media covers presidential nominations, as it seems to shift from cycle to cycle. Kevin Reining studied the 2016 Republican nomination closely, trying to figure out whether media coverage followed or led public interest and support. I asked him about his main findings. So you uh, studied the sources and effects of media coverage in the 2016 uh, Republican pre-primary period. What were the big findings and takeaways? Yeah, the, there are, I think, two big takeaways from it. One, and this one is perhaps not super surprising, uh, it's that media coverage drives a lot of interest in candidates. Uh, so we, in particular, we're not just looking at, you know, a lot of the research has been about media coverage and support. Uh, we were also adding in the interaction with uh, uh, just public interest in candidates as well. And so we find that media attention leads to public interest across sort of the whole field. Uh, we did find a very, we did not find a very strong relationship with media coverage and support. Uh, so increased media coverage leading to increased support, except for Donald Trump. Uh, he stood out as the sort of big exception where there was a clearer relationship between media coverage, increased media coverage leading to increased support uh, for him. So you uh, begin with a discussion of kind of how the uh, media decide who to cover uh, overall and in presidential primaries. So what are these basic media incentives and how much uh, have they changed? Yeah, there are two not necessarily competing incentives. Uh, but they end up being often competing. One is around just sort of journalistic norms, right? So these are the things that are taught in you know, journalism school, uh, for those who go to journalism school or are taught through, you know, socialization in your profession. And a lot of those revolve around a sense of wanting to be unbiased or providing just sort of the facts on the ground, though there has been uh, a big conversation in journalism about what un unbiasedness means and what being a sort of neutral arbiter means, especially since 2016. Um, and for those, the incentive is often then to be uh, the journalist that is kind of in, knows what's going on in the campaign, right? That knows which candidates really have support and only focusing on the candidates that really are going to be good, not good, good, going to be um, have a high chance of actually competing, right? Uh, in contrast, there is a media incentive around just the fact that it's a profit-making institution, or at least in most cases, media is a profit-making institution. Uh, and for those, you have to worry much more about viewership, right? Uh, who's, what stories are actually getting read, shared, things like that. And that has... Um, changed a lot in the lead of 2016 and then continued to change since then, in part because there is a lot more uh, 
data for those in the newsroom about what it's actually people are reading, right? 1970s, you sent out a newspaper, you did a news show, you didn't really know what people were paying attention to. Now, since there's all these analytics on websites and you know online video, you know exactly what people are looking at and when, and their advertisers know what people are looking at and when. And so that incentive can lead you to want to cover more of what people are interested in reading, right? Um, which can often lead to coverage of uh, things that are maybe not politically that important, right? But are sort of uh, eye-grabbing or attention-grabbing, attention, attention grabbing, I should say. Uh, and so those are sort of the two, two different incentives. And that's what we saw with 2016 in particular was that Donald Trump was seen you know, in two ways. One is sort of a, you know, sometimes explicitly talked about as like a sideshow, right? Something that wasn't very serious. And so a serious journalist wouldn't want to cover that. On the other hand, it became very clear that there was interest in Donald Trump as a candidate from viewers too. And so uh, media would want to cover that because media would want more, um, want more people coming to their websites, right? And so those are sort of the two competing incentives. So you uh, found uh, that uh, public interest uh, measured uh, by these online searches uh, followed uh, generally rather than uh, bringing media coverage. Um, how should we interpret that? And if, if the media isn't following this particular indicator of public interest, is it possible they're looking at other things like crowds or early state uh, performance to, to guide their coverage? So one thing I think is important to note in this, and I feel like I can say, uh, you know, it's it's been several years. I'm no longer a grad student and trying to worry about getting a getting a job. Is that I wish we had more fine grained data, right? We're looking at day level um, interest and uh, news coverage, right? And so some of these dynamics might just be washed out in the fact that um, we don't we don't have information about um, you know what in the you know the 10 minutes before something is happening is something blowing up on twitter at the time and that's leading to media coverage or is it you know the other way around so i think there's some parts where like there is room for more research at trying to find more fine-grained information right um or getting more fine-grained data on those sorts of very particular dynamics that we just can't couldn't get at the time right uh the other aspect of this is the actual events themselves and how people find out about them, right? So, you know, Donald Trump famously rode a golden escalator down to start off his campaign. Um, people have to find out about that somehow, and they find out about that through the media, right? And so what is sort of missing in here is the fact that candidates are doing things and that those things that candidates do get filtered through the media often before they get filtered into um, you know, public, the public at large. And though that also opens up a broader question about what the media is and you know, especially given uh, you know, splintering of, of the media landscape plus the rise of just you know, people who are social media influencers slash journalists slash just pundits like what their role is since they're disconnected from all this. Um, it, it's, it's a hard question, I think, to parse. I think what we can say from our finding is that at least for these sort of big events that, you know, if the media isn't there to cover them, right, or the, the campaign trail events, I should say, not necessarily big events, if the media isn't there to cover them, um, I don't think anyone's hearing about them, right? If, you know, John Kasich didn't actually even make it into our data because there are such few search trends for him. Um, and I think that's in part because the media wasn't there covering his, there, there weren't many stories out there. So he, how would you even know to search about John Kasich unless you are a dialed in, um, you know, politi politico of sorts? So as you mentioned, you found that media coverage uh, only uh, helped Trump directly in terms of the uh, poll, subsequent poll polling. Um, why do you think uh, that that was? Um, and maybe give us a, a flavor of the 
of the scale of the Trump campaign's media coverage, uh, because it certainly did seem to be uh, unending. And is that backed up in your data? Yeah. So, I mean, the Donald Trump dominated media coverage. Uh, not surprising. I think throughout the entire time, he had the majority of media coverage of all the candidates, right? So not just like a plurality of it, but like of all the media coverage of all the candidates, the majority of it went to Donald Trump, even though the field had lots of candidates in it at the time, right? And so there's that potential aspect of it. Um, you know, there might be an effect where, you know, if you if you just can't, can't get a foothold in the media, um, you know, people aren't going to find out enough about you to really decide to support you or not, right? Um, I think the other part, which is, you know, harder for us to do in this context, since we only really have a case of, of one of this, is the fact that Donald Trump was to a degree distinct from the rest of the Republican campaign or Republican candidates, right? He was distinct both in his temperament as well as some of the policy positions he put forth from being, you know, having policy positions that might lean slightly towards the left to having policy positions that were uh, racially conservative, if you want to use a euphemism there, right? To, you know, the comments that he made about immigrant immigrants, um, that the fact that he was saying things that were distinct, um, I think not only helped him make him stand out so the media was going to cover him more, but also if there is a subset of people out there that want those issues you know, that want those positions, um, you know, of a sort of uh, nationalist, conservative with more economic populism at times. Um, if, if there are people that want that, then they can find that in Donald Trump. And that wasn't in the rest of the Republican field. There wasn't anything else like him there, right? And so I, I think it's with, without... You know, it's, it's a hard research question to do to figure out why. I mean, this is the, in some ways, the question that a lot of political science, at least American politics, has been cycling around like the last, what, six years now about what makes Donald Trump unique. Um, it's hard to answer. My gut says right now it's some degree about the uniqueness of what he said, what he was, um, and the... Uh, the fact that he, he just dominated the media to a certain degree. Um, of course, that then goes into, and I know like your next question maybe is about this, is what does this mean for you know, 2024 when he is not as unique of a character, right? Um, a lot of his platform has been taken up um, by much more the Republican Party, though. It, it was interesting. There was only, I think, a few mentions of building the wall in the Republican debate, right? And that was, you know, a, a centerpiece of Donald Trump's campaign was this, you know, build the wall um, slogan. And so he's definitely like shaped the party, um, but he still has some unique attributes. Um, and so I, th I think it becomes maybe less clear, maybe gives a chance for other candidates to potentially break over, break through that. So we, we might be quick to point to policy positions, but obviously Donald Trump's been getting media coverage uh, since the 1980s, um, outsized for his, uh, I guess, direct influence in the world. Um, and he, he also, you know, drew from a lot of, I guess, which might call lowbrow consumer marketing, uh, things like infomercials and multi-level marketing schemes and the hats and all of that. So, I mean, is it possible that we just that what we what the media system got hit with is kind of the same as the political science system. This was just like a, a very not a new set of tactics to get media attention, but a, a, a successful one in another arena that was newly applied to politics. Yeah, I mean, that, that is a, a good point, right? I mean, he he campaigned in a way that was very different as as well. I mean, I, you know, I, I live in southwest Ohio. Um, if I drive out of my college town, I still go past lots of Trump flags, right? Um, I see Trump stickers all over the place. 
his he was always very good at marketing himself, even when there wasn't necessarily a whole lot of substance uh, behind it. And that might just have played out here. I mean, you see, you know, CNN has had CNN has made themselves way too much of the story here, which is kind of not great on its own. Um, but a lot of the their you know their post twenty sixteen and now their post twenty twenty two or whatever with this executive being pushed out um, has been a lot of like, well, what did we do wrong here? What did we cover wrong? Um, and he just, he's, he's not, it's, it feels, I don't know, too easy to say this. He's not a traditional candidate. Um, and it seems he is willing to do, you know, I, I often joke that he's sort of demonstrated that the, the goals that it's having no shame is basically a tool, right? Or a strength that not not being willing to apologize or not wanting to apologize, not being sort of things that I would be like embarrassed about, um, having people call out things I've said, um, that the ability to just sort of do it no matter what seems to be a strength that um, I guess from my perspective, thankfully not every candidate has, um, though maybe... Maybe that's what the, the Democrats need now is someone who is uh, unwilling to ever uh, admit that they are they are wrong and to uh, just say say things to get attention. Um, you know, it makes me think of um, the Florida member of Congress, Grayson, who got in trouble or not in trouble, but kept talking about like Republicans having blood on their hands. Um, maybe Democrats need more of that to be able to push back against um, the Trumping of the Republican Party. So we had uh, coming out of the 2012 election, this discovery scrutiny decline uh, model, um, which did incorporate uh, the media uh, very directly into the rise and fall of political candidates. Um, and you did test one uh, part of that, which is just is there a connection between media coverage and then uh, polling gains. But the other side of it was supposed to be that scrutiny, uh, that once media gets uh, a hold of a candidate, they tend to scrutinize the candidate and then the candidate goes down in the polls subsequently after that. So is there any uh, validity to that in, in 2016? Why didn't the scrutiny of Trump uh, lead, lead to a decline? And, and where do you think that is that model is today? Well, it's, it's again hard because I think there was a degree just not for Trump. I mean, I, I know our empirics don't necessarily fully support this as clearly for the other candidates, right? But we did see, you know, anecdotally uh, the, I don't know, second tier, the sort of like not Trump candidates appear, get, get you know, increased coverage, scrutinize, and then collapse, right? Um, I think in part, some of those might have been you know, over the whole span of the campaign, um, they might have been washed out of the data just because it was such a short part of it, right? Um, and so I guess the response to this is in some way going back, we've talked about before, that Trump might be unique. Um, I, I suspect that we're about to see the same thing happen to Vivek, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, um, that he is going to get a boost. He already was sort of in the uphill um, turn going into the into the debate. I think that will continue, and then I would guess he's going to drop back down in you know a month, maybe two. Right? I think we're seeing DeSantis following that. It's a little bit different because he sort of started at the top, or started I shouldn't say at the top because again. Donald Trump is the top, but he started as the second tier candidate or second rank candidate and is on the decline. Vivek will follow that. And then um, the question will be who will be next? And it might be like Nikki Haley might follow that model, right? Um, and it, it's possible that Trump could see this sudden you know, decline after if he is convicted. Um, but I think we do still, to some extent, see those dynamics. They just for whatever reason, don't seem to apply as clearly to Donald Trump that they do apply to the people who are challenging Donald Trump, right, um, in the campaign. So, yeah, as you mentioned, we have other ways of looking at the the party. Um, and if we think the presidential primary process is, is too idiosyncratic um, or we don't have enough uh, cases, 
you know, the, the endorsement or party elite based models have held up better at the congressional level, uh, for example, not that outsider candidates never uh, win, um, but that uh, endorsements seem to, to matter uh, there. Uh, obviously, we could look at the parties through their interest group networks or their um, uh, party organization, as I know you have have done. So what um, I guess, how does our view of parties change if we think think if we downgrade the importance of this presidential primary process? Uh, do they appear stronger? Uh, are they evolving differently? The question of they if they appear stronger, I think, is interesting because it's, it's not necessarily that they are. You know, parties in the United States are, you know, like famously weak, I guess, or party organizations in the United States are famously weak, right? Um, and it's even hard to talk about parties in some ways because we have, you know, the classic tripartite party model, party in the government, party in the electorate, and party as organizations, right? And the degree of strength of those varies, um, and also, you know, even when we talk about parties organizations, we have a much more complicated set of things from the organizations that exist around it to the actual, like, you know, official party organization, right? Um, I, I think, but I think the thing that we need to bring back in right now is uh, a clearer look of, you know, like where pundits and uh, more media actors fit into this network, into this, I guess, set of party individuals, right? Or party things, right? The media clearly plays a, ro a role and what we see more and more is parties, because of social media, being able to act as media in some ways to being able to reshare news, um, shape how their voters or their you know, members see things. You know, this doesn't necessarily, you know, not everyone is following, um, you know, the, the RNC on Facebook or Twitter, right, or their state party or whatever. But for the party activists who I think are um, increasingly important, um, these though they are following these sort of social media accounts uh you know i think more needs to be also said you know if i'm just laying out research i wish would get done um looking at how people have opted out of politics and what that means for the strength for the power of party activists right um, I think more and more people just see party politics as something that other people do, right? I know in some ways we've had increased voter turnout and things like that, um, but there is, I think, a harder, a, a hardcore group of people who just don't care about politics whatsoever because there's so much anger and fighting, right? And in some ways that empowers activists even more, and those activists are the ones that are running party organizations, running these interest groups. Um, and so maybe the organizations themselves aren't that powerful, but I think the activists have become uh, more influential. Trump is sometimes uh, grouped uh, with uh, things happening in other parts of the, the world. And there is certainly uh, some evidence that uh, democratic backsliding uh, is occurring more widely across uh, rich uh, dem democracies. Um, so it is... I guess a little bit weird uh, for uh, Americanists uh, to explain Trump by saying uh, we have these kind of convoluted dynamics for our presidential primary process and a specific kind of media infrastructure that enabled uh, Trump to, to rise. H how do we kind of place that series of explanations in this kind of global pattern where uh, people would point to um wider trends, or even in some cases, the, the sort of impossibility or difficulty of having a multiracial democracy succeed, um, you know, how, how can we get sort of our more particularistic explanations uh, in that context? I, I do think there's sort of two tensions, and these are tensions that exist in a lot of political science, or there's, there's two points of tension, right? One is that to a degree, the, the culture, the institutions, uh, of any single country are really important for understanding those countries' dynamics, right? On the other hand, we do think there are some sort of like general phenomenon that are generalizable from one country to another country, right? And it's possible that as Americanists, we have done too much 
of the former and we need to start doing a bit more of the, the latter as well. Um, the other question there, um, and, I, and I think it's the big question that a lot of political scientists are wrestling with now is the role of the internet um, and social media, which is often um, seen as a, uh, a through line in a lot of these different cases. Um, what is it, from like the 30,000 feet view, it looks like the, the social media matters a whole lot, but as you start looking more closely at specific dynamics, it's hard to figure out um, how exactly social media matters, right? Um, and so I, I, think, I think we can maybe get some um, better traction on these, these questions by sort of looking at how the internet and social media intersects with um, different types of electoral systems. Um, and that that could be helpful though, of us trying to understand American politics to draw on that literature, right? But I'm also not gonna, gonna throw out like the American politics, you know, subfield as a, or field as a whole, um, because I do think it's useful for us to um, be very thoughtful about, you know, what the, the background of our case, so to speak, is and understanding those in, in more specific ways, right? Uh, as I talk to my students, we need to figure out, you know, like what is unique about this case and what sort of things are unique in important and useful ways, right? Um, and so some of it is, is that America has this history of, of race and racism that isn't necessarily entirely unique, but the ways it's played out in American politics are maybe more unique. Um, and that this shapes a lot of our ongoing um, politics from how it shapes institutions to how it shapes um, people's opinions and uh, perceptions of the world. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes I recommend checking out next, all linked on our website. Do early primary states still pick presidents? Did Americans' racial attitudes elect Trump? Congressional primaries, how the parties fight insurgents? Racial stereotypes in voting for Obama and Trump? And do the parties prefer white male candidates? Thanks to Zachary Scott and Kevin Roining for joining me. Please check out Replicating the Discovery Scrutiny Decline Model of the Quantity of Media Coverage in Presidential Primaries and Media Coverage, Public Interest, and Support in the 2016 Republican Invisible Primary. And then listen in next time.